Before this episode begins, uh, I uh, wanted to extend a thank you from both my, from myself, Allison, and Julie um, to all the slackers who sent us cards and gifts. Um, we are tickled by every single one of them uh, and are so very thankful that you thought of us uh, during the holiday season and that you um, have are a part of this community that with us. We, we appreciate it. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, we, we can't say it enough. Um, additionally, wanted to make a quick note that this episode that you're about to listen to was recorded in 2020 at the end. Um, this is so before the act, the events that happened on January 6th, uh, 2021. Um, so just note that the next few episodes you hear, um, don't have that context and, um, eventually we'll get there. Okay. Uh, thank you so much and enjoy the episode. Oh, Yeah. Oh that, oh, that sounds... That's a nice glug glug. Yeah, it's a creamy glug glug. You can tell it's creamy. <laughs> I'm having vacation coffee, which means I put alcohol in it, but only a little because I can't really drink anymore because uh, it gives me a headache and it interacts with my medication. It's still called Podland and Drunk Cast. I called it December coffee yesterday, and I think that's the way I, that's what I'm always going to call spiked coffee from here on out. I'm going to go have a December coffee. I love, <laughs> I love that. That's great. It works. It works. It's yeah. good. Uh, we don't have a bit. Um, I, maybe it's because, you know what? Here's, here's the bit. And it's not so much a bit as a statement of fact. It's going to be different than it usually is, but I know that there is a certain subset of the drunk cast listenership that gets really excited when they find out that, that we are, they're listening to episode two of a two episode day. So I feel it is my duty to inform you. This is episode two of a two episode day. Yep. However, we have first not episode had... was 9 a.m., so we are not drunk. Yeah. We did not drink a growler in the first episode. <laughs> no, we did not. We, that, those were the days. We have not those transitioned to Bloody Mary's at 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we made some choices, guys. Mm-hmm. This is Welcome to Austin Austin, a Podlander Drunk Cast podcast. This is Volume 1, Imbibe and Prejudice, Chapter 4, Bridget Jones's Diary... Sub installment four. It's our fourth episode on Bridget Jones's diary. Um, uh, AKA the one with the dudes and tropes is what (laughs) I'm affectionately calling it. Uh, I'm Allison. I'm Julie. That's Janine. Hi. And uh, and we are joined this week by a very dear friend of mine who I've been very eager to have on the podcast for a while. Uh, Also, when I told friend of the show, Kate Kulzik, that we were pivoting to covering Austin stuff um, uh, while we were during Without Lander, um, those of you who are listening to this on our Austin-only feed, there's Outlander stuff, too. It's weird. It's a whole thing. Um, anyway, when I told friend of the show, Kate Kulzik, that's what you're doing, she was like, ooh, when is Caroline going to be on? So, Caroline Sita, thank you for joining us. Always. I'm so glad my reputation precedes me that this is really... I want people to only associate me with Jane Austen or romantic comedies. I want to be the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> well, the brand is strong because uh, I just knew that I mean, I, isn't it's, this is not going to be the last time, but I figure this is a really good place to start. Um, because as the author of long, how many years now have you been doing this column? I think three, I think I started two, three, something like that. The first one was Bridget Jones's diary. So that's a little tie in there for you. My, uh, column for the AV club called when romance met comedy that I've been doing somewhere between two to three years, (laughs) (laughs) unable to remember. And I cover the romantic comedy genre, one film at a time. It is wonderful. Thank you. Um, always a must read for me. Uh, and I knew Bridget Jones was the first one. Um, <laughs> I was Allison's aware. done her research. <laughs> I've got it. Um, so before we get into the specific topic at hand, which is loose, we can talk about whatever the hell we want. Um, but Caroline, when did you first see this movie and where would mm. you put it in the rom-com canon? What a good question. I don't ever remember a time that I haven't seen this movie. I mean, oh. I, there must have been a first time I saw it. There's a, it's a staple. Okay, Yeah, fun. I feel like it was one... I think it was one that I very much... I didn't see it in the theater. I think it was something I very much consumed in bits and pieces on TV. So it was one of those things that feels like it's just part of the repertoire. Um, and I would say that this is a really 
top tier example of in my mind there's like two kinds of rom-coms there's one that's uh e sort of equally focused on both people like the one harry met sally formula and then there's the other formula where there's really one main protagonist and the love interest you know they can have their own arcs but they're more secondary characters and so i think bridget jones really falls in that latter category and i think it's a really top tier example of that like this is we get some good romance stuff but we're also getting just a lot of bridget's arc on her own and so yeah real top tier top tier of that as the the genre as a whole was sort of slowly entering its period of decline this was like a real a high watermark I think what else would you put in that top tier of this rom-com subgenre the mm, like protagonist the first solo yeah yeah um let's see so I think other things actually um I think Hugh Grant has some good ones of these I think Four Weddings and a Funeral is very much his story and that's a movie where the the love interest side that's a phone ringing in my house I'm also in my parents house so there is a landline here <laughs> oh landlines that's <laughs> yep. fun yeah that's okay we can Old just edit this out great we'll see <laughs> someone picked it up all right there you go uh, That's fucking staying in, dude. <laughs> Love it. Man, a landlord. Speaking of 2001. They're calling know, right now. We're ready here. <laughs> yeah. Time Hugh counted. Grant calling me up. Um, so Hugh, so yeah, Hugh think, Grant's in other yes, versions of this. Yes. I think like Four Weddings and a Funeral is another thing. Uh, another movie where there's very much, you know, we're our one main guy we're following. We're following his friends as much as we are his sort of minor love interest. So that's another one I really like. I'm a big fan of Twenty Seven Dresses, which I know is a controversial choice, but that's another movie that's very much we're focused mainly on the the protagonist with her love interest as more of a secondary character. So that's what's immediately springing to mind. Twenty Seven Dresses, penned by the great Aline Brosh McKenna. Heck yeah, it is. Uh, who loved, I must have told you this, who loved your piece on 27 Dresses. Oh, I no, this, I don't right? think you have. Oh, yeah, she but loved that's it. that's lovely. Thank she loved you. it. Um, that Aline Brush McKenna, co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, second Crazy Ex-Girlfriend reference in, in our two episodes today. Well, I the mean, first one Bridget was Jones, about the sexy getting ready song. Bridget Jones and, and uh, Rebecca have a little crossover. These Venn diagrams cross, these balls touch. <laughs> the balls definitely the balls touch. Certainly touch. This now is it's a drunk cast episode. <laughs> this is definitely <laughs> this is definitely boxer brief territory for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh my, that's a that's a joke I don't understand as a non-haver of penis. Yeah, we're just our balls are closer. That's all. Do they wait? 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 Are they? Do, we don't have to talk. As about opposed this. to boxers, you mean? <laughs> yeah, it's boxers, pulling it in a like, little bit, getting it yeah, snug. You're like, yeah, you're getting in there. So is it like? My favorite part of this is that on the Zoom, Allison has a lot of hand gestures going on to try to figure out the mechanics, and it's really adding to the, the flow of the conversation, this, I would say. This is the, it's one of the downsides, the, maybe the only downside of also doing Zoom while we're recording is that, like, I can't, we, I keep using visual aids, although I guess we did that in person, Oh, too. we anyway. always do that. <laughs> yeah, we're sight okay. gaggers, We're man. terrible. Why, yeah. So, um, before we move on, just as an authority, uh, Caroline, is About a Boy a rom-com? Hmm. You know, what is and isn't a rom-com? <laughs> this is a question I frequently ask myself as someone who has to decide which movies I'm allowed to cover in this column. I would say you could make an argument for About a Boy as a rom-com. I would probably not immediately classify it as such. I think that's a little bit more of, like, I don't know, almost like a coming-of-age story for both Hugh Grant and mm. um, Nicholas Holt, little baby Nicholas Holt. But sure, I think it's one of those things that there's a lot of there's a lot of wiggle room in defining what a, a rom com is. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to make a strong argument, really, if you try hard enough, anything can be a rom com. I would say. Is the Devil Wears Prada a rom com? I would I would say no, but I did cover it in my column as an example of this exact sort of phenomenon where it's a movie that is, it's like using the tropes and the aesthetics and the tone of a rom com, and is clearly aimed at a predominantly like women audience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at least you know from the hollywood marketing point of view so i think something like legally blonde miss congeniality they're sort of like women-centric comedies with a heavy romance element i mean i'm also like is iron man a rom-com like half of the iron man franchise is about his romance like is spider-man is a rom-com like all these superheroes have love interests i don't know as i'm saying you can make up many uh uh, an out there argument if you so choose I'm suddenly is in Wonder camp, Woman though. a rom-com? is Wonder Woman a rom-com? Mm. I'm suddenly in this camp as well uh, that's a great <laughs> I think Spider-Man especially that's the strongest argument because like yeah, half so. of those Tobey Maguire ones are just him like 
being yeah. Bridget Jones, basically, and like lost <laughs> he just in love. happens to have powers. He's pulling on spanks yeah. under his suit, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Love yeah. it. Um, what about you've covered much ado about nothing in your mm-hmm. column? Is are all of Shakespeare's comedies rom coms? Mm. Like, I mean, yeah, fuck the Taming of the Shrew forever, but like, sure, sure, Taming of the yeah. Shrew, no, romance Dream. is definitely very central, and I would say established a lot of our. I always think Shakespeare sort of at least, if not originated, at least sort of popularized a lot of the sort of mainstream tropes of like, here's the enemies to lovers that obviously is a big part of Pride and Prejudice. And here's the Midsummer Night's Dream where just everyone is wacky. Like any rom-com where anything's wacky or there's just like hijinks. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, this is just modern day Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Yeah, you could probably make a case for all of the the Shakespeare's with rom-coms. And I think even Austen in and of itself, like the actual novels, I think... Obviously, romance is so central, but a lot of those, you're like, okay, they really are mostly centered on the women. Like, I think that even some of those are sort of borderline in terms of where they're, where mm-hmm. you want to categorize them. They can easily be categorized as rom-coms or rom-droms, romantic drama- dramas, but, you know, you could also make a case that romance is not, like, the only thing that they're focusing on. Hmm. Cool. Which is your, I realize I should have been doing this every time we have a guest, which is your favorite Pride and Prejudice adaptation? Mmm... My heart always lies with the Joe Wright, Keira Knightley version. You'll have to come um, back for that one. It's going to take which, us a while to get there. That's going to be yeah. our big finale. Mm. I think that that is a movie that is not a particularly great adaptation of Austin, but is a great movie in its own right. Mm. So I, I would not say that it gets a lot. You know, it really turns it into much more of like a melodrama than I think the like light satire of the novel. So I don't think it's a particularly faithful adaptation, but just as a movie in its own right, I absolutely adore it. Great. Cool. All right. So what I wanted to talk about specifically today is I'm curious about where you think, um, what the impact of Bridget Jones, Mm -hmm. the book and the movie has been on the rom-com genre as a whole, like the way that it has the, the, I guess, after effects that you see in movies that are coming out today and the links between it. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, the effect that Pride and Prejudice has had on rom-coms since its publication and specifically since its advent as wildly popular literature um, in the years after Jane Austen's death. Um, and when it, I think it had a resurgence in the, like, the early 20th century and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, because the thing, and we were talking about this in our last episode, uh, the thing that makes um, Bridget Jones such a good adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is that they choose to focus on Darcy and Wickham, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the thing they zoom in on. And there are little touches elsewhere, but that is unmistakable. It's not subtle. That's clearly what we're looking at. And I feel like you see that everywhere. The woman's head is always turned by the guy who's bad news. And she's got a bad impression of the guy who's actually good news. And the story is bad news guy and good news guy and our heroine. Um, So I know that's a, that's a lot of stuff that I just said, (laughs) and I'm not sure where you would want to start or, or Julie and Janine where you would want to start because it's, I mean, it's huge. It's, it's really, when you start thinking about Pride and Prejudice, it's really hard to think about lots and lots of romances that we've gotten since it was published that don't have Austen's fingerprints on it in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I think that we can credit Austen with the idea of really taking the romance genre and exploring it through a female protagonist lens, which I think is sort of like a lot of the top rom-coms really do that. Um, and I think that she's the one that, that really you know, took which a lot of things that Shakespeare was doing. Like, I think Shakespeare is a big influence on Austen and probably, you know, a big influence on every writer, every English language writer. Um, But I think she was really the one that was like, okay, let's take a lot of these romantic conventions, but really focus mostly on the female protagonist and also sort of provide commentary on, like, the female experience, women's, women's experiences beyond just romance. Like, so much of Pride and Prejudice is just, like, Lizzie's relationship with her sisters and her parents and her friends. And, like, okay, here's how Lizzie deals with romance and here's how Charlotte has to deal with, you know, navigating the realities of romance. So it really is... And I think a lot of the best romantic comedies are really just a, a good space to explore the female experience. This is why I, I go back to 27 Dresses, because, again, so much of 27 Dresses is just about Katherine Heigl's character having this whole arc of learning to stand up for herself that is, like, slightly interconnected to the romance, but really is mostly just her own arc, and you definitely see that, 
I think in Bridget in the rom-com genre in general but like obviously very much in Bridget Jones in particular as well we um in our previous episode today so for those of you listening in real time last week but for us two hours ago um we were talking about the uh outsize amount of hate Renee Zellweger seems to get for existing, um, which is something that also applies <laughs> uh, to Katherine Heigl and actually to Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's is just people who play some variation on Lizzie Bennett. I don't know. <laughs> um, but poor Katherine Heigl. I love that Carol, one, part of Caroline's well-defined brand is fierce defender of Katherine Heigl. And I love you for that. Yeah. She's, you know... She's out there doing her cat litter commercials, and we have to <laughs> we have really? to stand still. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a big part of her career now is doing like fresh step commercials. But you know what? Hey, man, make that money. Yeah, Cash make that, that money, Catherine yeah, Heigl. Yep. You know. I mean, Jennifer Garner's been doing Capital One commercials oh my for a long time. So like, she has in Quaker Oats. Right? What's in your wallet? Does she, yeah, she does Quaker really Oats as well. Does she? Uh huh. I think so. I she's, mean, listen. She's got Money. she's got her whole she's also got her own brand of like baby food. Nice. Oh yeah, she is heavy on the Instagram. Mm-hmm. I actually re- recently had to unfollow her because I was like, <laughs> I love you, Jen, but there's so much content coming at me, Too and much. I don't have time for this. She was also, all over the uh, Humans of New York thread for a while, and I was like, Jennifer Gardner, like I like your perspective, but well, you're not so much the Human of New York I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Does she live in New York? No, I don't think so. She was just enjoying enjoying a, a, a very long thread, and she just happened oh. to be popping up because she's Jennifer Garner. She's yeah. Jennifer Garner. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Cool. Well, here's actually a question maybe I could raise to you guys because this was something I was thinking about. Obviously, as you say, this is very much the Darcy Wickham model. The fact that Colin Firth is in this movie is, A, like, wild. Like, wild <laughs> from a meta perspective of casting. But beyond that, is this actually a Pride and Prejudice adaptation, or is this just a love triangle that they said was a Pride and Prejudice adaptation? Because to me, this is, like, as you phrased it, Allison, this was, like, zooming in on particular things, but I also feel like it's missing so many of the key things that would make something a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. To me, what it's missing is the social satire, because it does yeah. it. It just, it gives you social signifiers of knowing kind of what class Bridget and her family belong to, but then that's kind of set aside. But I, I think the case could be made for it being Pride and Prejudice, because the parents, the, their relationship, what they go through, um, uh the not having sisters, but having the group of friends that she bounces ideas off of, just like Lizzie does with Jane. Like, it's it's very loose. And I, the, I think uh, Allison's class. right is that the Colin Firth and, uh, sorry, the Wickham and Darcy is the biggest. Yeah, so. and I think the class conversations that are happening inside of that, well, not like full full frontal, like that also, um, I think... I that's the thing because I'm I'm obviously new to Austin stuff so like I'm being very struck by economic concerns that are in those books mm-hmm. and so like that's also inside of Bridget Jones which I enjoy. I think so mm-hmm. I say, yeah. my point is that I don't I don't think it's enough in Bridget Jones. I think it sure. should be more because in Pride and Prejudice it's such, it's almost a character in itself is the yeah. whole class distinction and how we do. I would be mm-hmm. very displeased like <laughs> all I that think shit. But they also zoom in a little bit on um, uh, old maid syndrome, right? On yeah, the like, yeah, for sure. Lizzie and Jane are still unmarried, even though they're relatively young. Obviously, mm-hmm. Charlotte Lucas is ancient <laughs> at twenty-seven. Yeah, oh God, really dried just, up. Yeah, and that falls into smug marrieds, I think. Right, like smug marrieds yeah. is part of that and also new money I think is part of that right because the Bingleys are new money but they look down on other people who are new money. Perpetua is totally like sort of a a Miss Bingley Mm -hmm. but so is Natasha obviously and then you sort of mash them together. I think that it's as a contemporary adaptation pretty solid because when for me when people try to do too much in those contemporary adaptations that's when things go sideways. Like it, like Ten Things I Hate About You is a good contemporary adaptation yeah. because it's not trying so hard. Yeah. Or um, Clueless, obviously another Austin adaptation. Um, although M- Amy Hecker, have you read about Clueless yet? Yeah, you this did? year because it was an anniversary, awesome. which I actually do think is a more 
faithful mm-hmm. adaptation of Emma than Bridget Jones is of Pride I and agree Prejudice. with that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm also realizing to me, I think because I have a sister, like Pride and Prejudice to me is so much about the sister relationships mm-hmm. that when a version doesn't have that, it feels like it's somehow not as complete. Two other contemporary adaptations that I love are um, Bride and Prejudice, which is like a Bollywood inspired oh, version. Love that one. And <laughs> that one's much more like literal, mostly for better, sometimes for worse, but like that really adapts like almost every version and then the web series the lizzie bennett diaries which was like a youtube series and also i think was a very smart contemporary adaptation they like pared down the number of sisters but they kept the sister element and so that i think i'm realizing now maybe this is more of a me thing of just being so tied into the sister aspect of the story that without that i'm like where we need jane like we need lydia where are they mm-hmm. no i think that that's a really good point because particularly the Jane relationship. We, we've talked about this in previous episodes. When you start thinking about Lydia and you try to update Lydia for contemporary storytelling, it gets real weird. Because if Lydia does just what she does in the book, then she's just living her life and everyone needs to shut the fuck up. But if you try to scale it up proportionally, like... Um, if you adjust Lydia's behavior for inflation, <laughs> you know what I mean? Then it's like, she still should be able to do what she wants and people should shut the fuck up. But all of a sudden we're talking about like... A little bit of Lexus. Really, more! Like re- like releasing a sex tape, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like you have to go, you have to get Full Kardashian? For it. Full I would Car- again point you to Bride and Prejudice and Lizzie right. Bennet Diaries. I think oh, do I very interesting things with the Lydia cool. Wickham dynamic in their own ways. I think that there's interesting choices made there. Sweet. Um, so where, let's start with the, with the Bridget Jones piece. How did this movie, from your perspective, change rom-coms after it was such a success? Mm. Yeah, it was such a massive hit. Like Brid- um, Bridget Jones, uh, Renee Zellweger got nominated for an Oscar for this, which I do feel like is huge and not unheard of, certainly for the rom-com genre, but like really speaks to how well received this movie was. I think, I think there was this really interesting burst in the very early 2000s, I guess late 90s, early 2000s of this real like girl power, female centric move. Like I, you know, in culture, like the Spice Girls. And this was the same year that Legally Blonde came out. Like I said, Miss Congeniality was around this time. And so I feel like there was this really nice, like, bubble (laughs) of, like, really positive, you know, maybe pretty simplistic, but, like, you know, mostly positive stuff that was going on. And then I think as we got further into the aughts, that almost curdled. Like, I I think the rom-com genre, if we want to say the modern version of it, really kicked off with, like, when Harry Met Sally in 1989 and Pretty Woman in 1990. So, like, through the 90s, it was really cruising. I think people were getting a little sick of it by that point, but, the, you know, it was still a very successful genre. And then as we get further and further into the 2000s, that was when we get these Katherine Heigl movies people don't like, the Matthew McConaughey movies people don't like. It felt like everyone involved in the genre was like, well, people pay to see these, so who cares if they're good? We'll just sort of start churning them out. So I think Bridget Jones... it. Its success is great, and it is a great movie, but it also sort of, like, foretold, I think, a a slow decline of the rom-com genre you would start to see as, I think, this, like, girl power bubble shifted into, eh, girls will go see anything, so, like, who cares if they're sexist? Who cares if we don't really put a lot of thought into them? So it's almost like people took the wrong lessons from this film's success, in a way. Um, yeah, because I think that those, those, it's like around like 2008, 2009, I feel like that's when you're really getting the lowest of the low of like very, very sexist films that no one put any thought or effort into. And like, really, that was when really like, it was almost like the rom-com genre just became toxic for a while and it sort of had to go underground and only, only more recently is sort of enjoying another resurgence. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit indicative of just how choices are made at top tier Hollywood production studios, right? Like now we're seeing that there are more women led producers out there who, who are making these decisions and understanding the market better. But at the aughts, as that transition, I, I wouldn't know the timeline. So as you've described that timeline, it makes sense to me that they found the rom-com male centric and then was like well that market isn't necessarily hitting women are a part of this market and then made found lightning in a bottle and then for the next 10 years just kept making choices that were just like well that lightning worked and that's the only thing we care about and we have no leadership position or market understanding of actually what this was and so we're just gonna uh, keep churning them out we're just gonna start making lifetime movies (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. 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 Interesting. Uh, and another fascinating thing is that in so we have the nineties as like the resurgence of the rom com genre, and then parallel and interconnected to that is like the resurgence of the Jane Austen. Like that was our huge Jane Austen boom of the uh, BBC A and E Pride and Prejudice and the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma and the um, Sense of Sensibility. Like that was just a huge burst of Austen. So it was sort of like as people were rediscovering romantic comedy, it was like, wait, all these great ones already exist. Let's just like mm. do those again because they're also awesome. I kind of feel you like that's t- happening right now. Do you guys yeah. see this like online and TikTok, well, all the Austin I stuff? I think and, like, some of that, I, some of it is just that culture is cyclical, but mm-hmm. I think some of it is that since every. Since everybody's trapped inside, we're all really resonating with like doing our needlework and going, taking our daily constitutionals. Yes. Taking our you turn know? about the room. Yes. Like, I'm in the yeah. same room. I'm, I, I have to, to take it. my turn about the room. Oh, there my was Fitbit literally just a, went off. Early in quarantine, I was. I'm, I was quarantined with my family and my sister and I started taking turns around the room because we were just like, I, we were like, what are, like, I, I feel like I understand why they're always just playing the piano and like reading. I'm like, oh, they had nothing to do and they didn't even have TV or movies. Like, of course they were just like a fun activity is us walking around a room. I don't know if you can see behind me, but I've moved my couch forward. This is normally a Friday night activity. I'm thinking about keeping it this way so I can walk around my room. <laughs> You know yes. what? Aaron, you're sorry, who's Aaron? Janine, your setup right now looks like the ad for Dolby where there's a person in a couch that's just like free form and their hair's being blown back. That's what well, it is. Why, why do you think like. I got a cat so I can just make that picture more complete? And Jasper does have majestic hair, so the exactly. hair would go backwards. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Caroline, li- at some point, Jasper is going to wander through the back of this frame Love and you that. are going to see the handsomest boy. Mm hmm. Julie and I were his godmothers, yes. and we are, are very proud of him. Yes. I love that. Oh, look, so it's my much. Christmas tree that I haven't put up yet. Hi. <laughs> well, that's very beautiful cool. color. I love it. I love it. My pink yeah, tree. I love um, it. Great. So, uh, do you think. Hmm, is Jane Austen just identifying tropes of men in nature, or did she sort of create these templates? You're. Your Wickham Ooh. and your Darcy. That's a chicken and egg thing. I like this one. Yeah, that is a very existential question. <laughs> I do think she, uh, <laughs> I mean, I do think Jane Austen is such a brilliant observer of life and then able to satirize that in a way that is exaggerated, but also you're like, okay, I feel like people like Mrs. Bennett and Lydia do exist. Like these are not, mm-hmm. these are not, or my, I always love Miss Bingley's first name is Caroline and there aren't that many Carolines in literature. So I'm always like, that's my girl, that horrible, <laughs> bitchy <laughs> woman. <laughs> well, you know, one of the few, her and the mom from Little House in the Prairie, like we're just a little group of Carolines here. Um, so yeah, I do think Jane Austen was great at observing these things and then sort of packaging them in happy endings, right? Like, she's never super cruel to her characters, and obviously there are realities where the Lydia Wickham plot does not wrap up in a happy marriage. You know, there's a lot of tragic stories of that era, and so I think she was good at identifying real things, satirizing them, but also putting a positive spin on them. So I think probably, like, the real-life Wickham, not that the... Pride and Prejudice Wickham is a good guy, but I think there are real life Wickhams who are even worse. And and Jane is like Jane Austen is like sort of gentle in how she presents it. So yeah, so I think that there's a little bit of a sanding down the rough edges, mm-hmm. which I actually think is something that the romantic comedy genre in general is good at doing. It's like okay, let's take real ideas about love and relationships, but like let's make them a comedy. You know, like you're not going to one Harry Met Sally for real life advice for what you should do, but you're sort of like okay, there's relatable cores here this put in an exaggerated way and sort of, you know, made gentle. And that's, I think, sort of the key to the, the genre success. It's not aiming for realism, but it is sort of connecting to real life, if only in sort of a tangential Allison way. Allison and I God, were I saying him. this about the book yesterday. The book, Bridget Jones' Diary, is much harder. It has harder corners yeah. and is like a little bit meaner. And the movie is much softer. And I think that's what made it feel more like Pride and Prejudice to me is because it did have that kind of like file it down like (laughs) but yeah I uh do you think Jane Austen just like grew up reading Shakespeare and was like I'm gonna tell this story but I'm gonna make (laughs) this woman Henry the fifth and then I gotta figure out who my people are around her I'm just gonna take these ideas but switch it like Dolly Parton did with all those folk songs 
like take the song about the woman dying and turn it into the song about the woman crying by the bridge because she got left. Yeah. One thing I always think about with like people like Austin or the Brontes, it's like how many other women were producing work of this quality, but they didn't happen to have relatives or connections that were publishing it for them. Like they're, you know, we're sort of like, oh, it's amazing that these women were able to tap into these ideas, but it's like, maybe there were thousands of women that were writing these things and we just never, or at least had the potential to write them and were never even encouraged from the beginning. Oh yeah. Big conversation about equity. (laughs) I mean, we have the work of Emily Dickinson because the person who found them wasn't someone who just threw them away. That's the only reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it, if her dad had still been alive and found them, he probably would have lit them on fire and those poems just wouldn't exist, you know? So, um, I think we're fortunate, but that's a great point, Caroline. Mm -hmm. And that's still true. Who people, (laughs) there are all kinds of people who are not straight white dudes making really cool things that will never see the light of day. I mean, there are also straight white dudes making cool things that will never see the light of day. But, um, but that is, uh, certainly true. That's a really Mm -hmm. good point. Yeah. Um, what's the greatest rom-com ever made? I've never asked you this. Okay, question. my personal favorite rom-com is The Wedding Singer, the Adam Sandler movie. I love that um, movie. That's a good movie. Which I think is just like, you, you know, you're like, oh, okay, Adam Sandler movie, I feel like I know the vibe of that, but actually it's just the sweetest, gentlest, like, kindest film ever made. Um, I think there's a strong argument for When Harry Met Sally as sort of like our best modern day rom-com, at least. It's hard for me to compare sort of the more recent stuff. Like, I love so many comedies from the 40s and 50s, like, and screwball comedies from the 30s as well. Like, it's hard for me to be like, okay, how am I going to compare, like, the Philadelphia story with When Harry Met Sally? So When Harry Met Sally is, like, my go-to answer for best, but Wedding Singer is number one in my heart. Although Bridget Jones is also up there as well. Like, I think just, it had been a couple years since I'd rewatched this, and it was one of those things where I was like, okay, am I going to feel bored rewatching this for this podcast? And I was immediately like, nope, I love this so much. I'm so happy. Uh, I know for a fact because of Twitter that uh, we ha- we shared an experience in this rewatching of Bridget Jones, even though we didn't watch it at the same time, which is that Hugh Grant's hotness in this movie is like a personal it assault. It is. He's so it's rude. Just slap. Just slaps rude. you with that washboard. <laughs> just it's- annoying pitch perfect casting for like the wrong actor you would you would just be like why would this girl ever date this guy because he is objectively so terrible with Hugh Grant you're like I 100% get it like I 100% get why she is she is knowingly you know dating this horrible trash man that she knows is a horrible trash man but like it's Hugh Grant looking very muscly and like what are you gonna do she's just irresistible he just it's like he looks like he needs a timeout in the worst mm-hmm. way. Like you just, there's something, there's something about it. The ele- the elevator entrance, and when they have dinner and he calls her a dirty bitch because of the paddling pool, and then the fucking pond. <sighs> Unreal. Thank. I just want to issue a blank thank you to the casting department. I mean, the casting, the costume department who found the perfect shirt, a shirt that looked perfect <laughs> wet, like. Wh- Whoever did the testing to figure out which fabric looked best wet, like, thank you to we, that person. Caroline, about- you just turned a good conversation into a into a bit as well, because yeah. we talked about this exact thing for, like, 20 minutes? That's an exaggeration. That. But it was that. a big part of, like, imagining some costume assistant who happens to have broad shoulders being tasked with, like, putting on a shirt, and he's got swim trunks on, and then he steps into a shower, and he comes out, and they take photos, and... And how many so times, how me. many shirts, how many times? How many before shirts? Before they found that one. Yeah. Absolutely. And did they like, did it they, maybe totally there were two, there it. was a dry one and then they like pre-dampened one. <laughs> like maybe one shirt for dry, one for arrange wet. it on him yes. before totally. the shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like just, oh. just oh, so Oh, it hot. just fills me with delight thinking about it. Yeah. Or I wonder, uh, cause like, I, I gotta think that that cigarette too. Cause the cigarette's like the, the cherry mm. on top. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. wonder, there's a little bit of prop work going mm. on there. It's like, you know, this, they wouldn't totally last. Let's work on this too. Hugh Grant, we're going to fucking make it's you a fantasy. Good oh yeah. God. The Good amount God. of, we've talked about this before too, but it bears repeating. The amount of smoking is, yeah. it's, it's, it's shocking to me how much, cause this movie, obviously it's, it's 20 years old basically. Um, but it it doesn't feel all that old in a lot of ways, except for some of the gross fat shamey stuff and the smoking. 
Because I don't, like, I remember where I was in 2001. I don't remember it being like that. I know it was. I remember smoking in bars. But I do not remember. The sight of Renee Zellweger smoking a cigarette in her apartment is just nuts yeah. to me. It's nuts. Yeah. yeah. Just having, like, I almost got to the point where I thought it was, like, a, a comedy bit because everyone was just smoking all the time. But it was just because that's normal. That's what you do yeah. when you're like, oh, they're going to go do something. I'm going to pass the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, our culture has shifted yeah. so much since then. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about Hugh Grant, too, to bring us back to our... Please. Obviously, I haven't stopped thinking about the shirtless moment. Neither have I. Discussing the no, neither have I. Um, <laughs> I haven't no. stopped thinking about no. it since I rewatched it two weeks ago. Yeah. But, uh... I think that this is actually an interesting moment for Hugh Grant's career because he had sort of become the poster boy for with with so we have like I mentioned we have one Harry Met Sally Pretty Woman that kicks off sort of the American rom com boom then in ninety four we have Four Weddings and a Funeral which is written by Richard Curtis of Love Actually fame who also co wrote this movie and with that sort of kicks uh, noted off. nemesis <laughs> of Emma Thompson Andrew Davies <laughs> continue of course our our uh, Austin expert and. <laughs> Noted nemesis. Hammer. I'm gonna get sued. <laughs> we disclaimer. There's enough disclaimers on this for anyone. If anyone takes this seriously, well then also uh, let's just remind. I'm gonna. Ourselves I the really am gonna have to include the audio on one of these episodes, just so people don't think I'm insane. Caroline, please continue. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, four weddings and a funeral sort of kicks off this like British wave of the the 90s rom-com boom and that was really like Hugh Grant was the star of that and in in Four Weddings and in Notting Hill he's very much like the floppied hair soft boy super sweet like lovable and and I think you you know people were like okay is this all that this guy can do and and I think in a way Bridget Jones gets lumped in as like oh that's just another Hugh Grant rom-com but actually the character he's playing in this is wildly different I think Hugh Grant himself had to, has said that this is closer to his real life personality than the earlier nice boys he had played. Um, <laughs> so thi- I actually think that this is like a legitimately great Hugh Grant performance that is very distinct from his earlier work. And in the way that there's this whole meta um, element of casting Colin Firth, there's this meta element of casting, you know, this this really nice rom-com lead to all of a sudden play essentially like the, the roguish villain. And wasn't this in, also in this after movie. his arrest? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, yeah, was, yeah, I can't remember the exact he years, got, but I'm pretty sure. The news of that broke while he was filming Sense and Sensibility because they, mm. Emma Thompson writes quite a lot about it in her shooting journal for Sense and Sensibility, which we will absolutely be talking about. Um, <laughs> Julie, we will do another book oh, I will club read and the trust fuck me. out of that. It's so fucking good. Caroline, you own that too, don't you? We've talked about no, this, haven't we? No, but oh. you have told me about it, and I would love to read it. She is obviously a very good writer. It is adorable. She and Kate Win Ang Lee had Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet share a room while they were filming so that they felt more like sisters. So they were they were roommates in like a little <laughs> inn. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, it's anyway, adorable. It's, it's adorable. It's the best. Uh... So yeah, he was arrested then. So he had this sort of squeaky king, queen, bleh, squeaky clean cinnamon roll image that Caroline's talking about, playing all of these roles, and then um, had this moment where that was tarnished. So I feel like that's the point at which Hugh Grant's career gets interesting because first he does this, and Colin Firth is doing Mr. Darcy, but in a completely different way, and Hugh Grant is playing against his previous type, but into his public image. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating. And then from there on out, he starts choosing things like About a Boy, which is about somebody vapid and shallow who's challenged about his vapidity and shallowness. Um, And like uh, more recently, Paddington 2. Oh my God, he's so fucking good in Paddington 2. He's so good in Paddington (laughs) 2. A Very English Scandal has that meta Hugh Grant crunchiness on top. Um, I just thought of another really good one. What was it? So his publicist is like the best publicist of all time or his agent agent. or whoever's reading stories for him or, or he's just most interesting. Oh, it was Florence Foster Jenkins is what I was thinking about. A movie I don't love, but he is great in it. And specifically again, is sort of interrogating these dueling conflicting aspects of his public persona, which makes his, I mean, he's a great actor in general, but I think it makes his performances so much more interesting. And I, and Colin Firth obviously is doing that to a smaller Mm -hmm. degree. Um, Although who doesn't want Colin Firth to just stare at you and say, Oh yes, they fucking do. (laughs) 
Oh, yes. I think it's we. Oh, yes, we fucking... Nice boys don't kiss like that. Oh, yes, they fucking do. Yes, please. I just want him to wrap uh, so me up about... in a coat now. That's what I yes, want. Yes, I want to be wrapped up in oh, a coat. Oh, yeah. The coat moment is such a nice, like, bit of physical mm-hmm. acting. I'm like, whoever came up with that blocking is <laughs> genius. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about moments like that one again in a second. Like, what are the iconic moments from this movie? But first, since we've already talked about um, the, frankly, rude hotness of Hugh Grant in this movie, can we talk about the very different flavor of hotness that we get from Colin Firth and from Darcy figures in the genre as well? Um, And, like, I guess maybe other examples of both of these dudes? Mm -hmm. Do we have other... Oh, you scamp bad boys and taciturn heroes that come to mind. I thought of one at the very beginning when we were first talking about the one woman, two men thing. Yeah. While you were sleeping. Mm. Because you have Peter Gallagher playing the asshole brother in the coma that you don't really find out as a super asshole until later, but he's totally vapid and like all image and all that shit. And then you've got the Darcy like carpenter over on the side played by uh, Bill, uh, uh, Bill yeah, Pullman, Pullman, thank you. And I think yeah. that's a really good example of this specific trope. And it's in a completely different setting, but the idea is the yeah. same. Bill Pullman has his very own rom-com lane that it's like... He's so hot in that I'm movie. sure Caroline will come up w- with other examples. But it has always felt to me like he's got his very own lane that no one else is in. And that lane is... I consider myself to be the luckiest man, 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 man <laughs> on the face, face, face of the earth. Right? Like, he's got that guy, like, awkward, <laughs> no game, somehow, and you just root for him anyway. I, it was my grandmother's. I had it sized down. She had really, she had really fat, fat fingers. fingers. Like, he's, yes, Bill Pullman <laughs> is, he could still get it. <laughs> oh, love Bill Pullman. That's a very good shout for a comparison. Mm to this movie in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I really love about Colin Firth's performance in Bridget Jones as like a riff on Darcy is that the thing I always connect with, I had like a revelation a couple years ago where my whole life had been like, am I Lizzie? Am I Jane? Like, which one do I relate to more? And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm Mr. Darcy. (laughs) (laughs) Like not, (laughs) not necessarily in the way he presents. I don't think I like come off that mean, but my read on Darcy is that there's a lot of like anxiety and social awkwardness Mm -hmm. to him that present, he presents it as like meanness, but then it's like all of a sudden you go to his house and he's like the nicest person in the world. And I'm like, yes, I'm always most comfortable when I'm at my house. And I have things where like, I'm trying to talk to someone, but I can't explain. And then I'm like, I'll go home and write them a thousand word email where I explain every emotion I had. And that will be a completely normal human reaction to this situation. And I think in this, this modern day, Darcy Colin Firth really taps into the awkwardness in a way that I think illuminates something that's easy to miss in sort of the book and earlier movie versions where he can't come off as just being, flat out rude, but this is like digging into the why of the the rudeness in a way that I think is really endearing and, and more like palatable in a modern context. Mm-hmm. I, that's my, that's always been, well, as an adult, that's been my read on Darcy as well, is that he's anxious and socially awkward. And the, there's that line of Austin's, um, I am ill-prepared to introduce myself to strangers, mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. um, but says things like that in the text. And a lot of times you think of the sort of stern mean, um, but you break down all of the great Darcy's and they all have that vibe. They all have, I like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do something with my hands. <laughs> it's like Alec Baldwin and 30 Rock with the two coffee cups walking with the two coffee cups mm-hmm. um, where he just doesn't know what to do. And then we'll write a passionate email explaining all of his feelings. Exactly. Yes, I totally agree. Um, and he's Colin Firth brings that quality out, I think in both adaptations, but especially in this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like Darcy, he, do, he can have like a fun, sillier side. Maybe not like, si- maybe silly isn't the right word for the, the actual novel, but like, there's, like, a warmth to him that you see when he's at Pemberley. But in other situations, he just, like, feels compelled to be serious, which is also a thing I relate to. Like, it can be hard. I don't know. Sometimes my go-to is, like, seriousness. And then I'm like, but if you get to know me, I'm really fun. <laughs> and I feel like that's Darcy's internal monologue. It's like, I know I'm coming off really serious, but, like, I'm really nice when I'm around my little sister or, like, whatever, <laughs> you know, when I'm not in this weird party situation. So, like, 
I need everyone to believe that about mm-hmm. me. And that's like a very, I feel like you see that in, in Bridget Jones when he's just like so weird at all these parties. And then he like gives this beautiful monologue about how he likes her just as she is. And it's like, what's happening? Like, where is this? You're a whole other person. Where is this coming yeah. from? Well, the thing I love about that scene, and maybe this is a good transition to talking about the iconic moments in the movie, because this is obviously one of them is that a- almost anyone else saying, I like you very much. It's not hot. Like, it's not, it doesn't make, give you a twinge. It's a weird thing to say. Like, <laughs> nah, circle yes or no. It's that. Yes, would you, exactly. You, oh. Yes slash no. Um, Peak of romance. Yeah. But he, <laughs> Colin Firth, Colin Firth is so good at making it clear that, like, those are the best words he can use to describe the feeling like the dialogue doesn't so much matter because it's what's sort of pushing it out, I guess. It's, he's very, very good at that. It's the same vibe as um, I hope to see you again very soon or like, oh, so you approve of it. The, basically the way Dar- Darcy asks when Lizzie comes to Pemberley in the miniseries mm-hmm. um, the first time where it's. I'm just being polite. I'm saying the right things and the nice things because this time I'm not going to be a dick. I promise I'm not going to be a dick. I (laughs) practiced in the mirror. I'm not going to be a dick. Uh, But underneath it is this like, oh, I love you. And you can feel it coming through. He's so good at that. He's still good at that. Mm -hmm. He he puts that quality in Mamma Mia, a franchise (laughs) in which that character is gay and we don't actually see him with any love interests, many love interests. He sits next to a man at the end of the first one, and I think we're supposed to, by implication, think these people are a couple. Who knows? Oh, proximity. Yeah, you know, they like glance at each other. I think, and that's that really seals the deal. Uh, I happen to see Mamma Mia two. Here we go again in theaters, sitting next to Caroline Sita, who, and I enjoyed this movie more than she did, but. But we have this, we share the same opinion of it. I just, I think, value different things in cinema. Uh, but at one point, she, she sort of leaned over to me and she said, I feel like I'm high. <laughs> <laughs> That's how weird that movie is. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I enjoyed every moment of it. It has its own logic. And sometimes that logic is Colin Firth reenacting the Titanic standing on the bow scene to the song Dancing nice. Queen. You know what? I'm, da- I'm down for that. Julie, we're gonna sometime we're gonna eat an edible. We're gonna watch the Mamma Mia movies. You're gonna love it. You're gonna do that with an edible. I mean, what do you not do with an edible? Or just let the movie be. Yeah, the the movie. It's not quite cats where the movie is a drug all by itself, but it's not far Mm -hmm. off. The movie's more like a a boozy margarita, I would say. You know, it's sort of I don't think I could take the the acid trip of cats. So like I'm into I'm into a boozy margarita. Yeah. So iconic moments um, beyond, right? Yes. What other, besides um, that wonderful speech, what do you think are the big Bridget Jones scenes? The tentpole moments. Mm-hmm. I really like when she yes. quits. The scene where she quits. Yeah. Uh, sort of. That's a real, like, that's a real great rom-com moment that doesn't hinge on romance. It just hinges on the the protagonist just, like, finding her confidence, getting rid of that guy. Like, it's fun, you know? I mean, it's so freaking cheesy. Like, they literally play respect, and you're like, this should not be working. But I am just like, hell yeah, Bridget, like, you did it. <laughs> totally. So that scene for me, I uh, always love. On this podcast, we stand Perpetua. Only in that love scene. Love Perpetua. Perpetua. I love that they let her be mm-hmm. nice. Because you really are, you're following along. You're like, okay, I'm trusting Bridget's opinion. Like, this seems like a terrible you know, co-worker to have. And then it's like, no, she misjudged her. Mm-hmm. You go Perpetua. You go Perpetua. <laughs> Solidarity. Sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? There's the, the sliding down the fireman's pole. That's the moment that you try to do Bridget Jones today, and that moment works basically unchanged. It's just that it ends up on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> or Twitter. It becomes a meme. Bridget's a meme. I was actually like, this is a better era to do something embarrassing. Like, the early 2000s was a better era because... What are they going to do? Play it on the news a couple mm-hmm. times, but it was not gonna. Yeah, it couldn't go. It didn't go very mm-hmm. far. Now, yeah. like fuck me. Well, there is. The sidewalk. There is. I mean, if you're if you're doing a god tier internet moment, uh, wine stomping grape news lady yes. is in that <laughs> tier. So it did happen sometimes. Well, 
And we have to. I think that was the period where uh, lightsaber uh, kid. Lightsaber came from kid. Under, yeah. yeah, lightsaber yeah, kid. Yeah, wow. That was um, yeah. David after dentist. <laughs> yeah. Is this me? Charlie bit my finger. Charlie. Wow. Remember I hope that? those kids are doing yeah. well. Um, the Charlie yeah. bit my finger kid is on TikTok, and I know this because anytime. I've ever seen a video of his on my page. It's I'm the I'm the Charlie bit my finger kid, and it just says it everywhere. And then there's a picture wow. of him, and he shows. He's, and I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no, you know, or work it, work what you got. Well, I'm I guess. glad this did get a publicist to do this. I'm glad for this you. didn't happen it's to like... Bridget. <laughs> yes, yes, truly, oh, yes. Uh, I also just love the whole the whole opening, singing all by myself with yes. a bottle of wine. I think, again, that's such a cheesy moment, but there's a core of relatability to it that even if you haven't literally done that, which I'm sure many people literally have, but if even if you haven't, you're like, I relate to this, like, spiraling, really, like, hitting a wall in your life in some way and expressing it through song and a whole lot of alcohol. Yep. And then, you know, she's just such a relatable mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. I think. Well, it's very and, easy to be seen in that moment. Yeah. I seen. yeah. Because Renee Zellweger doesn't play it for laughs. It's very funny because it's so sad. Truthful. <laughs> and sad. Yeah. You, think you get it. And it, that song has that. I'm not even a giant Celine Dion fan, sorry. But it. Uh, but that song has that effect on me, too, right? Mm. It's it, it's the. Um, it's in the. Uh, the it's all coming back to me now mm-hmm, vibe, mm-hmm. right? Where all of a sudden you're like, you've got some kind of scarf around your neck and a wind machine is blowing it, right? And like big background and yeah, it's it's that it's that world. Lots of like hand yes. thrust Ooh. down. Parallel hand mm-hmm. gestures like for emphasis. Up. Yes. <laughs> is there her. anything, Caroline, um, besides the Jane exclusion, which I think is a great point, and I, as much as I enjoy the friends, they certainly don't take the place of that really important relationship. Um, also, she at no point thinks that either of the men dicked over any of her friends, so that's a part of it, too. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you wish that this adaptation did better? That this, mm. or that just the movie did better? Yeah. Um... There were times, <laughs> struck me on this, on this rewatch, like her, her little sort of gentle romance with Darcy that isn't really even a romance, it's just them like slowly getting to know each other. But I was like, is he full on, seems like he's about to be engaged to this other woman. Like what's happening with the timing of these two relationships? I'm ha- I'm mostly happy to not think about it when I'm watching the movie, but I'm, that's always a part where I'm like, hmm, maybe, I get that they wanted to raise the stakes, you know, by giving him a... A girlfriend, but I'm always like, what's happening from Darcy's point of view here? Like, is he full on telling this woman he's about to propose to her and also like spending all this time with Bridget? Like, this is a little bit of a question mark for me. Yeah, that is a little, it's a little bit of a head scratcher, but I love that it gives us the, another thing that shouldn't work, but it does because Renee Zellweger is so good at her job. When it gets announced at the party and she goes, no! <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you could t- it just like it just ran out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. She could not stop herself. It's so good. Ugh. Yeah, also the cooking scene. Love the cooking scene. The blue soup. Oh, you know what I love? So, so obviously him saying "I like you just as you are" is incredible. But I also like how that it's very realistic how it plays out that she tells her friends, which obviously you would do. Like if some, if someone said that to me, I would be like, I need help processing this in every level. It's sweet how her friends react to it. It's sweet how her friends like turn it into a joke. And it's sweet how when he realizes her friends have turned it into a joke, he has a whole processing of like, oh, she has told her friends about something I said. What does that mean for what she thinks of me? And again, I'm like, whoa, I feel like I've been every person in that (laughs) scenario (laughs) in terms of like, oh, all these little clues or whatever. You know, so I really like how that it doesn't the movie is not just like this is the thing that would happen and we would move on. The movie is like this is the thing that a lot of people would be thinking about for a long time. Well, that's one of the moments that I think is really well adapted from the books because sorry, from the bank, because in Pride and Prejudice, that happens only it's Lady Catherine de Burr telling Darcy that uh, Lizzie did not promise that she wouldn't marry mm-hmm. him. And then he's like, <laughs> she's talking about yeah. <laughs> Hold on, I gotta go get my horse. Where's my green yep. jacket? I gotta go. Um, 
which I agree. I think that's a really wonderful, that's such a warm moment and she's embarrassed, but she's also yeah. pleased and like, yeah, that's great. That, that was my favorite moment in the movie. Like, really? I really like that, really like that moment. It was like, it was very sweet and just a lot of understanding across all these people who are very well meaning to each other. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that I like and singing the... on your couch drunk. That's mm-hmm. I like that this is, it does feel like a rom-com about somebody in their early 30s, which I think is a nice stage of life to anchor a rom-com around. Because sometimes when the characters are too young, you're a little bit like, okay, you know, this is, doesn't quite feel like they have enough life under their belt. I always feel like with high school rom-coms, I'm like, yeah, but I know this isn't going to last. But it's like, yeah, this is a good stage in life where the stakes feel high, maybe in a way they didn't in your 20s. But I don't know. There's like, you, you have the whole friends as family dynamic. Like, I think... The 32, 33 Bridget Jones era is like a nice, that's a nice age for your rom-com. That or older is nice for your rom-com protagonist mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Well, great. Caroline, is there anything else in this movie that we have not talked about today that you're just dying to cover? Mm. Just in general, I think the needle drops are great. Like the cheesiest <laughs> needle drops in the world, and yet somehow everyone, so satisfying to me. You're right about that respect one. It shouldn't work at all. I think it's... The fact that it's so on the nose is almost what makes it better. Because Cheeky. if it had yeah. been, yeah. if it had been like an ironic cover of respect or something, no. <laughs> but somehow it being just like, nope, here's Aretha, just works. It works great. Yeah. The cat's yelling in the background. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Tom fed the cat. Anything else? Uh, no, I think this is a pretty perfect movie. A great movie to watch around the holidays because it's bookended by Christmas and New Year's. So I think, yeah, this is, if you if you, you want to do a rewatch, this is a great time of year to rewatch it. But there's really no wrong time to rewatch Bridget Jones's Diary, I would say. Which is the better Christmas-adjacent rom-com mm-hmm. to watch at Christmas? Uh, I guess there are three. There's Sleepless mm-hmm. in Seattle. Yeah. And, and you could count When Harry Met Sally, but I don't. There's Sleepless in Seattle, and there's this one, and there's While You Were Sleeping. Those are the yeah. three that sort of come to mind. I, well, I do love While You Were Sleeping. That might take the cake for me. But I think this and Bridget Jones, or While You Were Sleeping and Bridget Jones are really, like, the two good. If you want a little Christmas flavor, but you don't want to love actually, oh. which is a lot of Christmas flavor. <laughs> saccharin is what that is. <laughs> Very saccharin. Speaking of Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and Richard Curtis. And yeah, Colin uh, Firth. Mm-hmm. Wow. And in Ponds. There we get Colin Firth. This is our, and like, Emma equal Thompson. opportunity pond Men in Ponds. Men in Ponds. Oh my God. We named our podcast the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> Rebrand. I'm going to have to, I'm going to put it somewhere. Well, it, that'll be, it's, it's going to take 10 minutes for people in the Slack to turn this into a t shirt you can buy on Redbubble. We're definitely going to have a t shirt that just says Men in Ponds. That'll be our yeah. second Sauce and Austin t shirt. And you need like a wet, a wet Hugh Grant and then a wet Colin Firth on the other side. So really just full Paul. representation. It's, they're just like two pillars, the two pillars of the Or men we make ponds. two separate t shirts yeah. a la Katja's woman tarot cards. And one is the hero, oh. which is Colin Firth and his angelic white. And then the next one is the rake with the cigarette and the. Yeah. Oh, uh, we are going to make some money. Oh, we're going to make some money. We're, ri- we're rich. We're rich. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you on the internet? And is there anything you want to plug? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Sita. And since we talked about it again, my column's called When Romance Met Comedy. And it's over on the AV Club, the most recent movie I wrote about was uh, the 1945 movie Christmas in Connecticut, which is like a really charming old school sort of screwball farce. And another good sort of Christmas adjacent holiday rom-com if you want one of those to check out. It's a great, I cannot say enough good things about this column and it's not just because Caroline's my pal. It's really, really good. They're always entertaining. Maybe, I think I, if I'm picking a Caroline rom-com writing flavor, I think Mm -hmm. I lean towards Caroline unabashedly loves it, but uh, Caroline understands that it's garbage, but still finds things to admire about it is also very good. (laughs) Yeah, they're both, it's a, it's they're good a re- really bounced back. I try to be positive, but sometimes you have to review my super ex-girlfriend, and there's just not a lot positive you can say about that one, so you just got to lean into the negative. <laughs> totally. 
Um, well, thank you again so much for being here. We also want to thank uh, all of you for listening. If you want more, you can find us on Twitter at Podlandercast. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podlandercast. You can find us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Podlanderdrunkcast. There you can join our Slack. You can find our Crowdcasts. You can visit Janine's Corner, uh, which is it's just bonus episodes, but it's Janine's Corner. Uh, other bonus episodes, fun stuff like that. Um, we want to thank all of our patrons who make it possible to do the show. However, we especially want to thank the following people. And now I have to scroll up. I always screw it up somehow. Julia Gulia, Kathleen Martini, Kelsey Kemp, Madison Johnson, Emily Day, uh, Betsy English, uh, Caitlin Reddick. I'm using a mouse instead of my finger and it's screwing things up. Uh, Caitlin Reddick, Ashley Tegason, The Other Janine, Kristen Freckled Fury, Liz and Tinkerbell, Stella Welch, Chrissy Shively, Denise Perkins, Kayla Reagan, Rachel Luzon, Rochelle Lefevre, Amanda Smith, Heather Robbins, Brittany Holbert, Emily Carlson, Amy Gustafson, Rachel Townsend, Steph Peterson, Kelly Mazella, Maria Chantel Salters, Mary the Falling Statue, Philip Nako, Tara Lucchino, Viv Pickles, aka Laura, Mary of the Grapefruit, Jenna Polkowski, Anne Gibson, Ruth McCormick, Katie Kirshner, Kara Marlowe, Trish McCrary, Jen Lander Drunklin, Kelly Bodden, Amanda Newton, and Kiki the Wise. The wise. Uh, thank you so much for making it possible to do the show and to everyone who listened this year. I have no idea which day this is publishing, but it was recorded before New Year's, so I'm just doing this on all of them in case it happens to be the correct one. Uh, have a happy New Year. Congratulations on making it through 2020. Uh, and we will be back very soon to talk about... <clears throat> oh, I'm stoked. I'm so ready. Pride and Prejudice. And zombies. <laughs> yes. Uh, until wait. then, be safe, be well, wear a mask, and fall into a pond if you have to. Bye. 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 Bye.